0: Maine and Jefferson in Memphis, Tennessee is where Memphis Blues first went on sale at Breeze department store in September of 1912. And it was an instant failure. Or was it an instant hit? We'll tell you the whole remarkable true story, this time on Blues Alley. Episode 4, The Same Old Song. Well, you see, Handy had written Memphis Blues as a campaign song for Memphis politician Boss Crump in 1909. It quickly became a local favorite. The band played it to routine acclaim at Colonial Country Club, on Petona Riverboat cruises up and down the Mississippi, at Dixie Park dances, and at the hottest spot in town, the Alaskan Roof Garden, atop the brand new Falls building on Front Street. So it seemed like a no-brainer to print up some copies and make a little money. And that's just what Handy set out to do. In the summer of 1912, L.Z. Phillips, the manager of the music counter at Breeze Department Store in Memphis, agreed to put the sheet music of Memphis Blues on sale if Handy would front the cost of the printing. The day they sealed the deal, Handy and Phillips were joined by another man, Denver-based composer and music publisher Theron C. Bennett. Bennett, a compact, stocky white man who had written St. Louis Tickle promoting the 1904 World's Fair, also owned a music publishing and distribution business, as well as the Dutch Mill Cafe in Denver, a music store-slash-hangout for local and touring musicians. Now, the day he met Handy, Bennett offered the composer nationwide distribution for his upcoming sheet music release of Memphis Blues. Handy jumped at the opportunity and made Bennett his sales representative. His first act was having Bennett arrange for the printing of Memphis Blues, which Handy would pay for on delivery. With national distribution arranged and the product ordered, it looked like things were off to a good start. On September 27, 1912, the copies of the song arrived and went on sale the next day at Breeze. Meanwhile, Handy was out scouring the other department stores in town trying to get them to carry the tune as well. He struck out at Lowenstein's and at Goldsmith's, both well-established department stores in Memphis. Even his old friends at the OK Hauk Piano Company turned him down, claiming their clientele wouldn't buy music composed by a black songwriter. Handy pointed out to Mr. Hauk that nearly all the music displayed in his store's window was ragtime, written by black composers for a black-owned publishing company in New York. Mr. Hauk smiled and replied wryly, I know that, but my customers don't. And that was the end of the conversation. Dejected, Handy returned to Breeze a few days later to check on sheet music sales there. And the news got even worse. The stack of a thousand copies that Handy had ordered still sat there, largely untouched. Nobody was buying Memphis Blues. Handy couldn't believe it. The song had been wildly popular every place he had performed for the last three years. But according to Bennett and Phillips, customers complained that the piece was too hard to play. Handy's investment was a bust after all. So with the stack of nearly a thousand unsold copies mocking his failure, Bennett made Handy an offer. He'd buy the Memphis Blues copyright and the printing plates for 50 bucks, so Handy could at least make a small profit on his $33 investment. Looking at the stack of unsold copies and glad to get any return, Handy agreed to sell and handed over the receipt for the printing plates and all rights to the song except authorship. He had the foresight to keep his name on the piece. And to make things look better for Handy, Bennett even valued the sale at $100, returning to Handy the remainder of the thousand copies of unsold sheet music valued at five cents each totaling another 50 bucks, bringing the total Handy received to $100, on paper anyway. Of course, this gift completely ignored the fact that Handy had actually paid for those thousand copies himself. They were already his. But seeing no other viable option, Handy took the deal. A week or so later, on October 7, 1912, Bennett placed an order, again at Zimmerman & Sons Music Printers, for 10,000 copies of Memphis Blues, this time with the Bennett Publishing imprint on the cover. By September, he'd sold 50,000 copies, and vaudeville star George Honeyboy Evans was planning a vocal edition with a brand new lyric written by George A. Norton. George Norton, who also wrote Melancholy Baby, created a lyric that would prove he'd never been anywhere near Memphis or even listened to the style of music he was writing. The second verse awkwardly refers to a big bassoon, not an instrument present in your average blues band. But that didn't slow the tune down. With Norton's lyric in place, Bennett sold the song to New York music publisher Joe Morris for, quote, "...a small fortune." Three months after that, another 50,000 copies were ordered. Memphis Blues was a huge hit, but how the song had gone from failure to fortune in a couple of months was the million-dollar question. The Memphis Blues was suddenly a runaway hit. Handy, it sold too soon. What he didn't know, and wouldn't find out until Bennett wrote him a letter confessing the details in 1933, is that it was all an elaborate plot, engineered to get handy to sell Bennett the song by convincing him that Memphis Blues was a flop. Bennett, who was supposed to have arranged for a thousand copies of the song from Otto Zimmerman and Sons, had, in fact, secretly ordered 2,000 copies. The stack of unsold copies Handy saw, mocking him the day he checked in on sales at Breeze, were Bennett's second order, the one he had arranged for on the down-low. The first thousand copies, the ones Handy paid for, had sold out in three days. Now, Around the time of Bennett's confession letter, a routine audit at Otto Zimmerman & Sons shed even more light on the deal. In what appears to be an intentional effort to hide the fact that the second order existed at all, Bennett arranged for the first thousand copies to be delivered express on September 27, 1912. Those are the copies that immediately went on sale at Bree's music counter. The second run, ship's standard delivery, arrived a few days later when Handy wasn't there to witness it. The evidence from a century's distance certainly looks like a carefully crafted fraud. Handy had only sold his copyright based on the information that the song wasn't selling. And that was a straight-up lie. Now, the only real source we have for details regarding the sale of the song is Handy's autobiography, Father of the Blues. Breeze sales records were lost in a fire, so there's no way to confirm how many copies of Memphis Blues were actually sold in that initial run. All of the other written accounts detailing the song's sale seem to, like this one, refer back to that single account in Handy's book. And to be fair, Handy had a financial interest in the outcome of these events. But based on his recounting, it does appear that the whole deal with Bennett had been a bait-and-switch. And that still appears to hold up when you look logically at who was likely involved. Bennett, of course, had to be part of it. He had placed the order for the extra thousand copies and had them shipped separately and ultimately ended up with the copyright. Elsie Phillips, the music manager at Breeze, had to at least have had knowledge of the deception. He would have been the one who put the second thousand copies on display to mislead Handy when he checked in on sales. And then there's the inventory management aspect. Could a department manager not know and not account for the fact that his department had sold their entire allotment of a thousand copies of sheet music in three days and still had a thousand pieces left? And there's one more piece of possibly damning evidence from Handy's book suggesting that Phillips was involved. Shortly after Theron Bennett secured the copyright for Memphis Blues, Elsie Phillips became the regional sales manager for Bennett's publishing company. As for Breeze department store and the printers Otto Zimmerman & Sons, there's no evidence to suggest that they were aware of the deal. Both appear to simply be merchants doing business in good faith. It had been Zimmerman & Sons, after all, who revealed the subterfuge around the extra thousand copies and how they'd been delivered. For Handy, though, it was just the same old song. This kind of thing has happened to artists, especially black artists, since the music business began. Protecting creators from this kind of abuse was one of the driving reasons for the 1909 revision of the Arcane Copyright Act. A major provision in the 1909 law split the 56-year copyright term in half, allowing creators an opportunity to recover their works after 28 years. It provided at least some recourse for artists who'd made a bad deal early on. But in 1912, the law was irrelevant as far as Handy was concerned. Even if he tried to use the New Copyright Act, he lived in Jim Crow, Memphis. The rights of a black artist were essentially non-existent. No court would rule in favor of a black plaintiff, and filing suit at all could get you lynched. It's also unlikely that most white people back then would have even thought Bennett and Phillips did anything wrong. As bizarre as it sounds today, stealing from a black man in 1912 Memphis was just business. For Memphis Blues, though, it was more than that. It was over, for Handy anyway. The composer was forced to sit on the sidelines and watch as his song became an international success and other people made all the money. Within a few years, James Reese Europe, a black orchestra conductor, had adopted the song. In his role as music director, Europe introduced the song to the dance team of Vernon and Irene Castle. The Castles slowed it down a bit and used it as the underscore for their brand new dance sensation, the Foxtrot. Back then, that was a big deal. The Castles, often referred to as the couple who taught America to dance from the waist down, were the power couple of their day, and their dance the Foxtrot took the song to an entirely new audience. In 1918, James Reese Europe would further the song again as he headed over there, His band, now known as the 369th Regiment Harlem Hellfighters, would take the song to France, making it part of the soundtrack for the First World War and introducing blues to continental Europe in the process. Even Mr. Hauk at the OK Hauk Piano Company would carry the song in his front window alongside a life-size photo of its composer, W.C. Handy, the local boy, made good. All In, Memphis Blues was an enormous hit, the first piece of American music to capture the ear and heart of the old world. Unfortunately, Handy was unable to claim any of the financial rewards from the success of his tune. Instead of lamenting the loss of Memphis Blues, though, the indefatigable Handy did something extraordinary. He simply went back to work. He'd proven he could do it once. Surely he could do it again. But could he? We'll find out next time on Blue's Alley. Thank you for listening to American Entertainment Works Blue's Alley. If you're able to support us, you can buy us a coffee on Ko-fi. It's not expensive and you'll be helping us tell more stories about American culture. That's ko-fi.com slash American Entertainment Works, all one word. You'll find a link to our Kofi page in the episode notes. American Entertainment Works is a not-for-profit corporation located in Nashville, Tennessee, so your contributions are tax-deductible. The Blues Alley opening and closing themes were written by Uptown Al, as was this episode. Additional episode music was performed by The Cave Dwellers and A.E. Works recording artist Jim Holthauser, Bumper Music was written and performed by Jonathan S. Anderson and Uptown Al. For a transcript and a list of sources for this episode, visit aeworks.org slash sources I'm your storyteller, Uptown Al. Thank you for listening to Blues Alley.